Hello and welcome to the KBL Weekly Podcast, where we feature a selection from the major land-related news stories in South Africa, which appear on our website, www.knowledgebase.land. I'm Rick Desache, Director of Research at Putlisani NPC, an NGO working in the land sector and curator of the website. Today, we report on issues making the news in week 47, from Monday the 18th of November to Sunday the 24th of November 2019. November the 15th was the deadline by which political parties should have made submissions on the draft Section 25 Amendment Bill. The bill seeks to amend the Constitution to enable expropriation without compensation. Different parties have taken widely differing positions. The chairperson of the Democratic Alliance Parliamentary Caucus, Anneli Lotteriet, issued a statement distributed on Politics Web to the effect that the party would not be making a submission, as the Constitution in the DA's view, quote, was not and never has been a barrier to land reform, close quote. The statement draws from the Presidential Advisory Panel on Land Reform and Agriculture, which also argued that amending the Constitution was unnecessary. The panel stated that without a constitutional amendment, To Section 25, the state is currently able and within its powers to expropriate land for land reform purposes based on just and equitable compensation. If, however, the purpose of the amendment is to implement expropriation without compensation wholesale and without conditions, then such a motion would offend Section 1 of the Constitution and would, in effect, collapse the core underlying values of our Constitution. The Big Story this week was written by Tony Carney in Ground Up and syndicated in The Citizen. It focused on the unanticipated postponement of the landmark case brought by CASAC, the Rural Women's Movement and seven rural residents of KwaZulu-Natal. As reported last week, the applicants, who are represented by the Legal Resources Centre, seek an order declaring that the Ingonyama Trust has acted unlawfully and in violation of the Constitution by cancelling original permissions to occupy and concluding residential lease agreements with the holders of these PTOs. The applicants seek an order declaring this practice illegal and demand the refund of rentals that have already been paid to the Ingonyama Trust. Ostensibly, the reason for the postponement stems from a last-minute decision by the KwaZulu-Natal Judge President, Ahmad Japi, that the matter should be heard by a full bench due to the serious nature of the issues involved. However, Kasak's Lawson Naidu 
appeared not to be persuaded by this rationale, and he questioned, why wait for the 11th hour to announce this when this case was set down for hearing months and months ago? We don't understand that, and at the very least, we would have expected to have been given an opportunity to make representations before the decision to postpone was made. It now seems as if the case will only be heard in 2020. In our section on land policy, Tembeka Nukaitobe, writing in New Frame, has argued that while land redistribution is vital to address the injustices of the past, we need a transformative vision of the constitution and political action guided by law to make land reform effective. He notes that land reform seeks to reconcile three intersecting and overlapping currents correcting historical wrongs, confronting the present social and economic inequities, and securing an equality-based future for all. If land reform is unable to meet these goals, it will be a failure. Mukwe Tobe dissects the failing of the land reform program, noting that in the case of restitution, quote, the experts historians, advocates, attorneys, anthropologists, property valuers, have displaced the landed and the landless as the central players in the struggle for the return of land, unquote. He records how the land reform program has been bedeviled by gross incompetence and corruption. He identifies a sense of directionless which prevails amongst the bureaucracy, which is confronted by an overwhelming policy congestion. Ngokoe Tobe proposes a redistributional model for land reform, but one which must be implemented with particular conditions. He prioritizes the need to redistribute land where the landholders are currently not using it productively. But he also observes that access to rural farmland will not satisfy land hunger and that urban land must be factored into the frame. He points to other policy instruments which could be employed to speed up land acquisition, particularly focusing on land taxes which seem to have fallen out of current policy thinking. In his conclusion, Ukwe Tobi argues that the Constitution's ultimate goal is to dismantle the colonial and apartheid state. The unequal land patterns are colonialism's most enduring legacy. But it cannot be resolved by chaos and elite land grabbing, but through deliberate political action guided by the rule of law. Rosalie Kingwell, writing in the Daily Maverick, reflects on what South Africa can expect from the presidential land reform report. She describes the report as a pivotal moment in South Africa's fraught land reform program. In July, all relevant departments and directorates were given two months to read and respond to the report, a deadline which expired three months ago. Yet civil society remains in the dark as to the government's way forward. However, despite her concerns over the delay, Kingwell remains optimistic that land administration 
was identified as a critical land reform issue. The focus on land administration requires the development of, quote, overall policy and management frameworks for the regulation and administration of land and access rights. Kingwell seeks reassurance from government that the justification for the panel was deeper than electioneering and pacifying an expectant public, and she argues that government needs to re-engage with civil society to help reconstruct the institutions which have been undermined during the nine wasted years under President Zuma. In our section on land rights and mining this week, Ernest Mabuza, writing in Dispatch Live, reports on how a coalition of environmental activists celebrated a decision by the Constitutional Court to refuse Utter Africa's bid to mine coal inside the Mabola protected area near Vakastrum in Mpumalanga. Approvals had previously been given to the company by both the then Minister of Mineral Resources, Mosebenze Zwane, and the late Environmental Affairs Minister, Edna Mulhewa. This authorization was challenged in the High Court in 2018, which subsequently set aside the Minister's approval. The High Court refused Utter Africa leave to appeal, and the Supreme Court of Appeal followed suit. This prompted the company to approach the Constitutional Court which also dismissed the application with costs, as, in the view of the Constitutional Court, it bore no reasonable prospect of success. However, John Yeld, writing in Ground Up, cautions that the decision of the Constitutional Court does not yet necessarily mark the end of the line. Apparently, there are elements within the Mpumalanga provincial government who are now attempting to excise the proposed mining properties from the protected area. The MEC for Agriculture, Fuzi Shongwe, published notice of his intention in this regard earlier this year in August. The coalition has threatened to return to court, stating there is, quote, no rational or justifiable basis for any exclusion, particularly in the light of available science and policy as highlighted in the coalition's objection. Close quote. Marian Tam, writing in the Daily Maverick, reports on the joint Landburg-Werkblatt. Powell's symposium entitled Land Reform in Practice, Practical Solutions, held on the 14th and 15th of November in the series. She focuses in part on the words of Peter Prinsloo, a closer-speaking dentist who farms in the Kamani district of the Eastern Cape and who's a member of the Eastern Cape Powell's Steering Committee. According to Prinsloo, the solutions to the land issue had to come from farmers themselves. Prinsloo was of the view that the current land debate is driven by fear. He stated, 
We are scared of what is going to happen instead of being straight and honest about fear and addressing the fear, coming to the table and talking about what we fear. I don't think the changing of the Constitution was ever intended to dispossess people who are producing off the land. We have identified common ground. We must talk as a collective. My message is, change the narrative. Closing the symposium, Minister Tokodidiza said she had listened to and had heard what farmers had said. According to the minister, the showcase of successful partnerships had proved that there was, quote, a new way of doing things that can bring us together as South Africans, close quote. Filed under restitution this week is a story by Nelisiwe Umsomi and Poncho Pilane from Healthy News, who write about the forgotten people of Plotfontein near Kimberley in the Northern Cape. Members of the Plotfontein community featured in an article on public hearings around the National Health Insurance Bill. So what's this got to do with restitution? The Plotfontein story was first documented by Eddie Koch back in 1995 in an article which also appeared in the Mail of Guardian. He describes how the Kru and queer community consists of some 550 South African National Defence Force soldiers and their dependents who come mainly from southern Angola and the eastern Caprivi of Namibia. In 1990, during the run-up to Namibia's independence election, most of the members of the two communities, fearing persecution at the hands of a Swapo-led government, decided to pull out with the South African army and settle at Schmitzdrift, where they were given automatic South African citizenship and rows of canvas tents, unquote. But the Schmitzdrift army base where they were resettled was itself the site of a forced removal and was under a land claim. This meant that the two groups were eventually relocated to Plattfontein. Now, according to the article, some 7,000 people live at Plattfontein, where they have remained largely forgotten. Intergenerational casualties as the displacement associated with apartheid wars in the region lives on. The primary focus in our rural development section this week is on measures to try and contain a serious outbreak of foot and mouth disease, which had spread from a livestock auction near Dendron to four feedlots in Limpopo. Foot and mouth is a notifiable disease in livestock. It is highly contagious, affecting cattle and pigs, and it can also affect sheep and goats. In Limpopo, the area between the Kruger National Park and the residential part of the, of the province is declared a red zone. This is because while buffaloes are the carriers of the foot and mouth disease, livestock gets infected because they drink from the same rivers as the buffalo. The disease is also in KZN, 
Mpumalanga and Limpopo, especially in the Bembe district. The World Organization for Animal Health Standards require that animals be culled and the department has to compensate the affected farmers. Despite this, foot and mouth disease can be the cause of huge financial losses for farmers, many of whom are already struggling with the impacts of drought. A statement from Neo Masitela of Afasa emphasized the seriousness of the outbreak and the economic risks that it represents. He noted that an outbreak in 2011 in KwaZulu-Natal had resulted in a ban on South African meat exports, which cost the country 4 billion rand in lost revenue. In other news, Fin24 reports on the launch of Farm Beats, an agriculture research program funded by Microsoft, which aims to make the benefits of artificial intelligence available to farmers. FarmBeats monitors soil temperature and moisture levels to augment farmers' existing knowledge and to enable them to make more effective farming decisions. Proceedings at the Africa Agri and Daba have aimed to create awareness about this new platform and two pilot projects, one in KwaZulu-Natal and the other in Limpopo, seek to test out the facility. relating to traditional leadership, Amanda Koza, writing in New Frame, explores how the Ndwedwe Development Committee has gone head-to-head with the local Nkosi in Duduzo Ngobo, who, it is alleged, has pulled the plug on a 40 million rand development which was authorised by the local municipality. This was reportedly on the grounds that the development was taking place on tribal land under the control of the Nganyama Trust, without its permission. This appears to be a long-standing dispute, which seems to have been underreported, as there have been protests which, according to the article, saw the tribal court and the Nkosi's house being burnt to the ground. Kosa writes that when she contacted the Nkosi for comment, he responded that she was posing rubbish questions. She quotes him as saying that, Firstly, you visited that community without the council's permission. If you want to know what's happening in my community, I have a tribal court that you can visit and you can speak directly to me and not to speak to community members about me. The notion that permission is required from the traditional council before a visit can be made to a community indicates the level of control which the council seeks to wield over the people it regards as its subjects. In the same week, Soiso Moliti, writing in Dispatch Live, reports on how the Eastern Cape government has endorsed the traditional courts bill at a COGDA committee meeting in Bisho on Wednesday. This endorsement was despite substantive objections from activists such as the Alliance for Rural Democracy and the Sonki Gender Justice about the rights of rural citizens and women being undermined by the bill. Both of these reports suggest that democracy is persistently undermined in the former Bantustans 
and that the old apartheid order remains alive and well in the countryside. Finally, in our section on urban land use, the puzzling case of the Alexandra Renewal Project is back in the news this week. With the denial by the former Gauteng MEC and Premier Nomfula Mokonyane that the project failed on her watch. At the heart of the matter are allegations about the misuse of a supposed 1.3 billion rand of government money over a seven-year period. Mokonyane denies that this money was ever allocated to the project. This echoes another denial, this time by Mbazima Shiloa, also a former Gauteng Premier, who was summoned to appear before the South African Human Rights Commission and the Public Protector Inquiry into the Alexandra Renewal Project. Shiloa testified that the 1.3 billion was approved but was never actually allocated. This suggests that while there was a lot of hype about renewal in Alexandra, there was not any real commitment to it, although a variety of role players insist they have delivered services and housing in the congested township. Perhaps the SAHRC will finally shed some light on the allegations of corruption and misappropriation of funds. Finally, turning to Cape Town, Groundup reports on a protest by Reclaim the City, who are contesting what they regard as the illegal sale by the city of Cape Town of the Tafelberg, a disused property in Seapoint, to a private school developer. Reclaim the City and Ndifuna Ukwazi Law Centre initiated a court case in 2017 to overturn the designation of the Tafelberg property which was classified as surplus by the city of Cape Town, and to address the legacy of spatial apartheid in the city. That case will finally be heard next week, more than two years after it was initiated. So that's all from our overview of land news in week 47. You'll be able to listen to a new episode in our podcast series, which should be out on Monday the 2nd of December and featuring news from week 48. In the meantime, you can also follow us on Twitter at KnowledgeBaseL, where we tweet on land issues daily. Mm -hmm.